Hello, welcome to Laminiforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Laminiforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by music journalist Joseph Schaefer. In addition to his work with Bandcamp, Decibel Magazine, and Stereo Gum, Schaefer publishes a monthly heavy metal column with consequence of sound called Mining Metal. Schaefer is also part of the team that runs Northwest Terror Fest, an extreme metal festival based in Seattle, Washington. In this episode, Schaefer and I talked about his path into metal criticism, his duties with Northwest Terror Fest, and his thoughts on the metal scene in 2020. Because the two of us share a history working together, we also take plenty of digressions to talk shop and fire off some hot takes on heavy metal. It's a loose episode, but one that I had a lot of fun recording. Thank you for listening. In case it's, this gets edited in and, and people don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the monthly black market column at Stereo Gum, which is like mostly staffed by people who used to have jobs that Ian and I also used to have. Um, and I don't know if you've ever like hung out with those guys, but like uh, I've, I've spent some time hanging out with Doug Moore and Aaron Levere before. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically Aaron. Um, Aaron and I have, have like... He was one of the people that I would like routinely see at Maryland Death Fest like every year. Yeah, see, that's the big difference between like your connections in the metal scene and, and mine, I think, is mainly that you're part of the MDF, you know, right. society. And that like that op- that's clearly like where a lot of the handshakes are made in this industry. In case anyone's trying to break in, if, you know, shows ever happen again. If <laughs> MDF to go. happens again, which like I like. A solid thirty percent of the things that I that I've been like nostalgic for during COVID are all Maryland Death Fest related. A credit to the the experience that those guys generate. Although I I really need to say that like the organizers of the fest deserve like none of the credit for my nostalgia. Like the nostalgia is like purely a result of like a select few bands and people who go regularly. That's a tangent. But yes, we'll we'll have a, a I think we'll have a fair amount of tangents on this one. This one's going to be pretty loose, loosey goosey, but you know, we're we'll bounce around. So yeah, we were talking about the black market. And actually both of these things will come back okay. to the main core of our conversation okay. in, like, in a sense because you know, the reason that I'm talking to you is that you, you know, do curate a festival or work uh, as a one of the heads of Northwest Terror Fest. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It, yes. And you also write a, a monthly metal column. So ha- like talking about other metal festivals and other monthly metal columns, I think is germane to the thrust of this conversation, you know? Yeah, it's funny because those are both activities that like I don't think of them as like things that I do. Like at this point, they're just like part of the rigmarole of my life. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like I, I'm not certain that I can like relate that to anyone who's never had the experience of putting on a fest or like being responsible for a regular piece of content that like is delivered in a regular interval before be that as it may 
the absolute best thing about the, the black market column at Stereo Gum is the introductory essays. The other Ian, who was also previously an editor-in-chief at Invisible Oranges, that Ian is a weird mercurial figure. He and I have had one telephone conversation. He isn't on social media, and I don't have his email address. So, like, he and I have no contact, but, like, his brain operates in some sort of non-Euclidean space (laughs) that mine does not. He just has ideas that, like, my my synapses aren't wired to, to generate. And one of them, this circles back around to what you do, because we were talking about your work as a musician and, and how, like, because of COVID, you've had to take sort of this executive producer role, right? Right. One of his absolute best columns was <laughs> he, <laughs> I'm laughing even thinking about it. He made an, Is this the Fiverr yeah, one? Yeah, when he yeah, made an yes. OSDM revival band on Fiverr, where like he's the sole <laughs> creative member of the band and did none of the work, just paid other people to do the work piecemeal. I think about that probably once a week. It's incredible. It reminds me a lot. There's this one YouTuber, like it's actually like, I don't know how common it is on YouTube, but I get a sense that it's a type of YouTube genre of like going on Fiverr and challenging musicians to do weird shit for money. Right. You know? Yeah, like there's that one like Italian bass player who's always like trying to get people to do like insane, impossible bass lines on Fiverr. And it's it's actually pretty entertaining. But the idea of someone taking that and making like the most willfully unlistenable <laughs> fucking like old school death metal record is like, yeah, I never would have made that leap. Like there's some writers and I, I, I would often feel this way with Doug Moore, who also used to um, do the, the main introductory essays for the black market. And also uh, and used I, to be editor-in-chief at Invisible Oranges. Invisible Oranges, yeah. We're, we're very deep in the Invisible Oranges family tree for, I think, a lot of this. Um, and <laughs> yes. I, I, I like Doug. I've, I've hung out with him at, at shows and whatnot. He's a cool dude. But And so, like, the, the sensation that I'd have seeing a lot of his stuff is like, fuck, I wish I had thought of that. Right. But the the other Ian at, at Stereo Gum, I read that and I'm like, there's no way I ever could have thought of that. Right. <laughs> you're totally You're totally correct. He has a he has a skill for finding interesting things that other people haven't thought of. In a way, um, I think he reminds me of like the guy who wrote Moneyball. Oh, okay. I, I yeah, forget yeah, yeah. that guy's name. Is that Bill James? Am I remembering my baseball stuff? I correctly? think that may be correct. I don't really care to look it up in the course of this <laughs> podcast, but I'm certain like at least one of the five listeners knows who I'm talking about. Yeah, I've I've got some you know some sports fans on my <laughs> that, that listen to what I do for some reason, so they'll they'll figure it out. <laughs> he did that. Author did a uh, guest stint on Ezra Klein's podcast, and mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I love Vox. I love Ezra Klein's podcast, although I have mixed personal feelings about the political leanings of both. But be that as it may, I think that, that Ezra is a talented interviewer and particularly is when he wants to be very good at finding good guests. It's in almost routinely like the, the best of his guests are the guests that have nothing to do with the current political zeitgeist. But that that author was one of them. At one point in time, he, he just starts talking to the guy and he says, so where do you get all your ideas from? And this guy says, okay, I, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in a podcast. He says, I can't tell you, but there is a secret source I have that is 
and I think he says it's like the only safe way I can describe it so you won't be able to find it is a database of fascinating people. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, and whenever I don't know what to do, I just return to the same database of fascinating people that I've had since the beginning of my career and that like all of my books have mm-hmm. come from. And I'm sitting here like, where is your chemical X dude? Where is this fucking hard drive full of every wackadoo idea dude and gal and otherwise human that you have? And who put it, who made it? Like I mm-hmm. become Nick Cage in national treasure in my head, thinking about trying to find this database. Well, that's, that actually reminds me a bit of our previous shared job that we've already mentioned a few times is like i feel like as an editor one of the things that you kind of want to do is build up a roster of people with interesting perspectives you know and like that can be sort of the way that you shape a a publication is just find a bunch of different people who have very idiosyncratic perspectives on stuff um or at least that's how i was like hoping to approach it i don't know if i don't think i succeeded i'm i'm on the record about that already so we don't have to worry about that but i feel like that at least is i i recognize that uh that impulse have you ever told the story about how you and i met on this podcast have you ever done that no i don't think you've actually come up i'm sorry it's okay no <laughs> it what why should i why should i be upset about that well i you know what i actually want to start this somewhere else because despite the fact that we have worked together and have done creative projects outside of this podcast and outside of other stuff that is publicly available more on that later i actually don't really know too much about your writerly origin story oh shit okay so just to just to fill me in so i know where to take this going from there how did you start writing about music how did that become something that you you know one of the many things that you have to do repetitively as you described earlier how much of a long view do you want me to take because, like, it, this is one of those things where, like, I could do the, I was born in a barn in Pennsylvania approach, or I could do it, like, social network and start with, like, a girl in a restaurant. Like, which <laughs> of these do you want? Uh, closer to social network. We're trying to keep that zippy Aaron Sorkin pace here, if you sure. know what I mean. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. So what you're saying is I should uh, make it like the West Wing and go do some crack between drafts, right? <laughs> Is it is it actually crack that he was doing, or I'm was it pretty, just? I think he has admitted and said that it was like straight up crack cocaine. Damn, Sorkin was doing krills. Who who fucking knew? That's so insane. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm currently obsessed with The West Wing because it is an example of something, a, a trope that you and I have invented that isn't public knowledge yet. But it's it's competence porn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the ultimate comfort food now because, like, in a world where politics is so disassociated from reality and from, like, its own function, in the way that Godzilla movies are a fantasy about divine retribution and, like, wanting there to be, like, the comfort of an Old Testament god that will just, like, wipe you off the planet for, like, haranguing Mother Earth, Mm -hmm. the West Wing is a fantasy about a New Testament god and that being like just democracy that functions right 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 yeah I, there's definitely been like i feel like there was a current affairs article around the time that trump got elected that was sort of talking about a similar thing about how like it is it is absolutely wish fulfillment right for a certain type of centrist liberal mind you know to but anyway your origins <laughs> i'm not a centrist and i'm not a liberal it's just a fantasy now because i'm so used to everything else just being a stiletto heel to my neck and not in a fun way <laughs> 
Sure, sure. I didn't mean to accuse you of such. Speaking but, of yeah. stiletto heels on my neck. This literally, the story literally does begin like with a girl at a restaurant because, so I went to a college called Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And the thing that that school is most known for, or was at the time, is supposedly the nation's best study abroad program. Something like 90 odd percent of the students study abroad. And I was about to, and it's all during your same year, it's all during your junior year. So I was about to go to my, into my junior year, and I was dating a sophomore, and we had serious uh, disagreements on whether or not a relationship could survive one or either of us being away from one another for an extended period of time. As it turns out, our relationship didn't even make it into my junior year, but the thing is about studying abroad is you need to plan in advance, right? Like you need to plan to do it, right? And I was at the beginning of the right. planning phases, and so I had these like two concurrent problems, which is how do I not destroy my relationship with my girlfriend in retrospect I, if like if i could go back in time i would say to myself destroy it faster like <laughs> do more bad things to this relationship faster because it was absolutely like the worst decision i've ever made in my life was being romantically involved with that person at that time but that was my one concern and my other concern was as a declared english major my potential things that i could do in study abroad were very limited it was basically like go to england that was it. And the economy was just starting to melt down. Like, you just now had, like, wonk blogs beginning to be like, uh, uh, was it Lehman Brothers? They're like, uh, Lehman Brothers is in trouble. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do. Like, Obama had just gotten elected. It, and some people were already being like, okay, look, like, the, the pillar's going to drop at some point. So I didn't want to do any of the English study abroad programs because I was like, this isn't going to help me get a job at all. And I was like, what, what jobs are like available for someone who studied English? Cause it's too late for me to change my, my major and not incur like another year of school, which I would have to pay for because my scholarships ran out, etc. So there was a, a program where you could, instead of studying abroad, take an internship in New York city, mm -hmm. which it did try the New York times. Didn't get in, tried it. Like I think, bomb a magazine didn't get in so i like i got into the program but couldn't find a place to do an internship and at some point in time like the guy who runs the program says hey are you a metalhead what did the did the at that point in time i think like a monomarth did the like a monomarth t-shirt not give it away to you man he's like <laughs> yeah he's like I, I don't know if you knew but i'm a, my close personal friend is ian christie the author of sound of the beast and i was like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what are you saying and he's like could see if he needs an intern and it turns out that ian didn't really need an, a third ian he didn't need an intern but he took me on anyway we don't speak anymore because i was a terrible intern <laughs> however he, he did he tried to get me a job at metal maniacs so I, I did manage to get like my one email from the editor at metal maniacs saying hey you don't really have the qualifications but ian says you're cool so You've got the job. Unfortunately, our last issue, it looks like, just went to press this afternoon. So you had the position for all of 10 seconds. I'm sorry. But this is like the, the golden age of MP3 blogs. So, like, right. Ian taught me how to start a blog spot, make a press inquiry, conduct an interview, format something in rudimentary HTML, use an embed code, etc. And that was my start. And then, like, I went back to college and worked on the school paper got almost expelled for doing an article where I like explained to people step by step how to steal something with BitTorrent. 
and then graduated from college into like this job market that was like for all intents and purposes like a crater pit a wasteland um with nothing to do and so i just started a blog which was no no longer existent which was like mostly bad but introduced me to some cool people i was just like covering purely heavy metal like what was the the shape of the blog at the time it was all metal from the midwest uh-huh because i was like stuck in the midwest i had to leave new york city and go back to school so i did that and at that point in time my favorite website on the planet was no queen singing um mm. and i just emailed the editor of no queen singing and i said hey can i write for you and he says, I can't pay you because we make no ad revenue because I refuse to put ads up. But in case, if you just need exposure, yeah. And I said, sure. And I had like a staff position there for a few months. And then within weeks, uh, got, did an interview with Blake Judd from Noctimistium that got reposted by Rolling Stone. So that's how my <laughs> career started. That is the story of how my career as a music journalist began and in a weird way also sort of the story about how it ended because to this day nothing i've done has gotten like half the exposure of getting blake judd to talk about shooting up heroin uh for no queen singing and so th this was like what like 2010 this is the yeah the sort of breakout year for them this yeah. is so yeah and this is like the tour that like, they were opening for cradle of filth they were trying to open to a big audience and like honestly like it was so here's the thing um Charlie Fell, now the singer of Cobalt, was the drummer at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the key keyboardist now in the band on that tour was Sanford Parker, who, like, people forget, was, like, at that time, the most in-demand producer in all of metal in North America. Yeah, huge deal back in those times. I remember that, like, being, like, kind of the, one of the big things. When I moved to Chicago, and this would have been around the same time, you know, it was like the Pelican guys were working with him. Right. Knock Misty. I mean, it was just like whole sense that like the Chicago metal scene just sort of orbited that dude. Right. And I think Will Lindsay was the bassist on that tour. Don't quote me on that. But I believe I believe he'd left Wolves in the Throne Room to do Knock Misty. At that point in time, that band was a murderer's row. That that band was insane. And the, the thing I will remember most not about the interview was like being psyched to watch them after this interview and then seeing them live and me being the only person in a crowd of 1000 people remotely interested in what they were doing. They, they cleared the room. Yeah. 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 No cradle of filth can fans cared one whit. None of them had heard of knock Mystium. None of them cared. It like, it is remarkable how much of a career misstep that was. Even though in their position, if someone says, yep, okay, you're, you now just got like a 9 out of 10 in Pitchfork or whatever, let's put you on tour with Cradle of Filth. That makes perfect sense. And it yeah, just didn't work. Yeah, what a strange period of time. Like that, because at that point, that was when you started to see this really interesting bifurcation of like metal that was acceptable in, because like Pitchfork would never give a score like that, even to the best Cradle of Filth record, you know? Then... Like, now, if they like, if they reissued what's the first one, Principle of Evil Made Flesh or something, I think they did. Like, if you reissued it now, they would do a retro review and give it nine out of ten. Right, but at the time, it, I mean, it, again, yeah, even then, I feel like Pitchfork at this point is so wishy-washy on whether they really care about metal that, like, or music, 
Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> they've got they've got bigger overlords to to grapple with at this point. So. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, what the, my point being is that there was this real sense of that the metal community was in this very strange place where there were some bands that were going to do very well, kind of on the periphery of heavy metal culture and in sort of the hipster quote unquote or more alternative indie rock scenes correct and would get a certain degree of hype through that but then also would have crossover like noctmistium were covered heavy on metal sucks too like let's not you know obscure the facts or anything but at the same time metal sucks could then cover cradle of filth and more mainstream more you know right 90 miles per hour fastball down the middle metal stuff that would never get touched on the other side. Right. And then you could go even further in, in that direction. And eventually you get to like more just straight up metal press that would never touch the, the sort of stuff that was being covered by the hipster side of the metal culture. So it was this like really strange kind of divide that was starting to eat away at things. It's sort of how I saw it, but it, it, it split further later. Mm-hmm. But that was sort of like the that was the first time I saw a visible crack, yeah, in person. I, I do want to sort of scroll ahead a bit because within about four years from that, we're working together at Invisible Oranges, right? So you stuck with the blogging thing, like even though you you peaked at Knockmistium, you you kept going. <laughs> that was yeah, that was my that Knockmistium interview was me being Ridley Scott making Alien and Dead Blade Runner in one day. But I, su- I suppose me editing Invisible Oranges is sort of me doing Gladiator. I just managed to stick around at Invisible Oranges long enough for like everyone who is more talented than me to have had a shot at being the lead editor except for Grimkin. They were foolish to offer it to me and not her. I will put that on the record. Although, at the time, I think, given the candor of the fan base, that makes sense. You kind of need a bit more corporate shielding right? to make a choice like that. Like Noisy had the latitude to do something like that. Right. And we're not gonna, I'm not saying that the Noisy thing worked out for any of the parties involved. From what I can understand, that whole thing was a fucking shit show. But and I, Kim is, you know, doesn't seem particularly fond of the vice structure that she had to deal with. I'm not particularly but, fond of the invisible oranges structure that I had to deal with. Um, <laughs> I understand where Kim's coming from completely. And mm-hmm. also I think for a solid nine months there, noisy was fucking dope. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I got, I got checks from noisy. That shit was fun. Like it was, they were doing a really good job of kind of bridging that divide or sort of like elevating that, that metal right. hipster side into it's it, it's the synthesis of those sort of of that conflict that we saw in the early part of the decade integrating they, it and then and then once the minute it was integrated music stopped mattering anymore <laughs> like not metal i mean like music period like now there is right. no mainstream musical discourse beyond taylor swift right for two days until something else happens you know correct anyway so now you get to tell your side of how we met yeah, so I, I took on the editorial role of Invisible Oranges after having been like tutored by like very many talented people, Cosmo Lee, Doug Moore, Aaron Also, Aaron Larvier, as I mentioned earlier. Great, great people helping me become not such a total fuckwit, although I remain an absolute fuckwit. I start doing Invisible Oranges and I figure out pretty quickly, like, I need help. This is a lot of labor. Someone from Brooklyn Vegan, I don't remember who, says, hey, have you thought about this guy? Ian Corey. And I said, 
I've never fucking heard of Ian fucking Corey. What the fuck are you fucking talking about, you Brooklyn fuck? And uh, they say, like, look, just read the fucking email, dude. And they send me an email that's two published clips of yours. And the two published clips are, one is a review of Paul Bearer's second album. Yes. Paul Bearer, a band that, while I respect and understand why they're popular, I have many opinions about. And the other being Trypticon's Milana Chasmata record, an album that has a, a weird uh, reputation, but which I personally ad- adore without qualification. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And you liked the Paul Bearer record and didn't fucking like the Trypticon record so much. <laughs> and so I remember my first thing being like, okay, well, already I don't agree with any of his fucking takes, which means he's probably smarter than I am. <laughs> Yeah, I will say for the record, I was definitely too high on that Paul Bearer album. I, I've sort of cooled off on them at the, since that was it. Foundations of Decay, I think it was what it was Foundations called. Foundations of Burden, the second one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I like them more now. I think they're actually a better band now. But let's go yeah. on. Well, no, I, I that's what I mean. Is it's they've gotten better, and that album retrospectively, they clearly weren't there yet. You know, I'm sure many of their fans would disagree, but I I agree. Trypticon, I still think I was right. I don't. I think that record's a pretty big step down from their first one. But you're totally yeah. wrong. You're. I couldn't be. <laughs> couldn't be more wrong. But let's not argue over Tom G. Warrior's career right now. That is. That's how we started working together. So I started writing for Invisible Oranges, 2014, and I sort of view. I did a bit of blogging for two of my other friends. Uh, one of my friends' sites where I was sort of like every week new album review and that was just about learning how to be productive like none of those reviews were good right uh, in my opinion and then the the next one for unrecorded it was like i was the basically i became the metal guy at a broader pop indie culture site and that was a lot of fun i I definitely improved there but i felt like i was not i didn't know how to straddle the line between like how do i balance like what metal i'm interested in versus the metal that everyone else is interested in and so writing for invisible oranges was fun because uh i became sort of the pop guy (laughs) in a metal site it sort of felt like like i i felt so in over my head about how much like io was like focused on purely extreme metal and just had to like get my weight up on all of that stuff which was very very gratifying to find like how i can sneak into and find my lane of covering heavy metal purely as heavy metal in in my defense of the site at that time i as as a lead editor i felt like i was sort of perpetually on the end of like a giant like the sarlacc pit Mm -hmm. you know uh because taste wise i think i skew a little more toward you than a lot of what we wound up covering Although, like, we needed so much content that it got to the point where I was like, anything that I thought was half decent was worth writing about. You know, so, like, a, a lot of stuff went up that, like, in the absence of the need for three, two or three posts in a day, I, I don't think would be worthy of, not bad, like, good, perfectly good stuff, perfectly good music, just not, there's only so much atmospheric black metal a man can take. Yeah, I mean, I think just as a writer, you run out of ways to talk about some stuff. Like, there's music that I enjoy that I have nothing productive to say about, or at least nothing new that's productive to say about it, because maybe it's just, like, functionally good music, but is not particularly bringing anything new to the table, you right. know? Which, I, I don't know, it's, I'd be interested in hearing, like, what kind of music do you enjoy writing about? Like, what kind of pieces about music do you, like 
do you enjoy writing the most? What gets your brain humming? Writing or doing? Because they're actually different processes. Like the writing usually come, depending on the format of the article, like my creative process is very, very different. Sure. I love interviews more than anything. Primarily, like I think my big strength as a writer at that time was minus Jay Bennett. I don't think there was anyone in metal better at doing a Q&A than me for about three years there. I think most of the Q&As I did for Invisible Oranges that time were fucking dynamite. And maybe that makes me sound egotistical. I promise, like, I'm not actually that egotistical of a person, but just, like, they were fun to do. I got people to say wild stuff. I think I provided, like, some genuine insight into people's careers. Interviews bring me the most joy to do. Mostly because I like talking to people. Mm Mm-hmm. I like people. Uh, reviews are my least favorite thing to do. I think from like what you just said, because like I think nine odd times out of ten, my you know my opinion of something can be summed up as this is good. I don't like it. Sorry, right. I, like, yeah. it, that's it. That's the bottom line. Everyone loves Morbid Angel. My opinion of almost every Morbid Angel album and most Morbid Angel songs is this is good. I don't like it. Right, and and right. like it, I, it, I can spend, I've spent too much time trying to crack that boulder into a smaller rock, and I've just realized that's it. That's the most atomic. That's as deep as it goes. It's like I don't like it, and that's it. It's like it's not going to transmute into anything. Any review becomes me just banging my head against a wall, trying and failing to explain to people why I don't like it. When there isn't a good reason. It's just like, it doesn't make my nerves tingle. It it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't do the thing that it does right. to some people. Well, the interesting thing, though, is like, I feel like one of your most talked about pieces at IO was you explaining why you didn't like something, you know? Uh, okay, are we going to do it? Are we going to talk? This is, okay, this is, maybe this is my, wa- this is my Waterloo right here. <laughs> Yeah, so you wrote a very, uh, I actually think, like, relatively measured, or at least it, it wasn't just, like, a total hit piece. It actually had, you you gave reasons as to why you did not like the seminal Slayer record, Rain and Blood. And it caused a, a pretty big fervor amongst the readership at the time. I still think it was, like, worth saying, because getting a alternative view on a record that I think there's generally a lot of consensus about is a useful critical project why do you think people took such offense to that that piece that you wrote (laughs) no one likes when you mess with their childhood that was my like ryan johnson doing the last jedi if we're (laughs) continuing like the film critic version that's like that's like here i'm going to do like a review of a slayer record of maybe the slayer record you know if the last jedi is his critique of empire strikes back that also echo echoes the form right this mm-hmm. that was my like critique of rain and blood that echoes the form of like the glowing praise that's always followed it and like people hated the last jedi because what he had to say is he's like yeah very entertaining masterful movies i love them too that's why i'm here doing it there's a fundamental philosophical problem with them mm-hmm. and they'd be better if they reckoned with that that's like what totally. Ryan Johnson's saying with The Last Jedi. Rain and Blood is like the Empire Strikes Back of metal albums. It's darker than everything that came before it. It has this iconic moment. 
instead of I am your father, it's the dun dun dun. Right. Yeah. Dun yeah, dun yeah. dun. It like this moment of like sublime tension and release, right? And it changed everything afterward. Like you don't get death metal without Rain and Blood. You don't get extreme metal without Rain and Blood. Slayer isn't an important band without Rain and Blood, sorry. Whereas like right. in contrast, Metallica is an important band without Master of Puppets, which is a better album than Rain and Blood. But Yes, that's I mean, that you're, no one's gonna log on to this podcast and say that Rain and Blood is better than Master of Puppets. That's for Many people sure. think that. Many it's, people they're they're wrong. It, they're very wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> But what I actually, what I like, I just to jump in, one of the things I really liked about that piece is it actually helped explain why I liked Rain and Blood, you know, like in negative analysis of it, you actually helped explain what it is better than overheaping it with praise. And I actually feel this way about Last Jedi too, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm butting in, is that by saying Slayer reduced heavy metal to like a marching band, it was right. like, oh, that's why it's cool. <laughs> like that's what that's what it makes it work for me. And I think the same way that like uh, Ryan Johnson sort of saying like that you have to get rid of the past in order to appreciate moving forward is like oh shit yeah that makes the old movies beautiful because they're they're old you know right and you can move beyond them like that's cool that's a good lesson. You're mixing my metaphor, but you're I agree. And to be clear, because I, I need to do this whenever someone brings in this article, I never said it was a bad record. Um, and, I ne- <laughs> and I never once said I didn't like it. What I said was, it's not the second best metal album of all time, which if you look at all, the, and admittedly mainstream, but in the underground too, like if you crunch the data, its critical consensus is the second most beloved metal album of all time behind Master of Puppets by Metallica. That is the reputation it has. And all I was saying was like, yeah, it's it's good. It's not my favorite Slayer album, but it's good. Like, there's things I like. I think the first and last songs are rightfully held up as absolute masterpieces. And I listen to it for pleasure sometimes. But I'm like, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, like, it's the Pieta. It's not. Like, and it's silly to think that way. I But... Or at least someone, like, the people who love it need to understand that it's perfectly valid to not see it as the PA talk. Right. And and so around that same period of time, you also started getting uh, involved not just in the metal criticism or metal media, but you actually started getting involved in putting on a festival, uh, if I'm remembering my timeline. No, that's the correct timeline. So how did you get involved with Northwest Terror Fest? There's there's a there's a community of, of metalheads in Seattle that I'm a part of that are like are or were to the extent that there is a scene anymore who even knows we're like very involved in the scene in part because Invisible Oranges and who I chose to be friends with and spend my time with um, and we'd talked for years about doing a fest and. There was a previous fest called Southwest Terror Fest, and the founder of Southwest Terror Fest moved to Washington State, and he approached someone else who assembled a team that included me, and he said, hey, I want to do this up here in Washington. Also, I'm too old and tired to do it by myself, so I need you guys to start taking over. Um, and it turns out we were all bad at it, but I was one of the people who was the least bad at it. So I just... my. Uh, struggles were, reward, were rewarded with stress 
And so now it, you're pretty much the the primary guy at this point. It's been around for what, like four, three or four years? Is that we, right? This year was going to be year four. Mm-hmm. It was going to be. Hopefully year four will happen in year five. I think that's mostly out of my my hands, honestly. It's no, there's there is a team of I couldn't do I couldn't do it without anyone. The <laughs> I have a large creative role in terms of the aesthetics and the curating, but it is a democratic process. Mm-hmm. The difference between me and everyone else is I'm willing to go out and be an idiot on the record about it. My primary skill is like being willing to like put my foot in my mouth on behalf of of something I like in public. This is me doing that right now. This is that. Sure. Yeah. But do you feel like that? I I see similarities in terms of what it means to be like the person at Invisible Oranges that was required to have like the monthly column and sort of be the face of the site. And now you're sort of the face of the festival. Right. And I, I see some parallels here. Do you, do you feel like the skills that you learned in one situation have translated over to the other, whether that be in curation or having knowing which bands are going to actually work at the festival and figuring out how to build that kind of structure or just the public facing side of it? How do you, how do you feel like these two roles have informed each other over time? Project management just translates across fields mm-hmm. because project management is, is like a cognitive strategy function. Like the, the, the substance of what it is of the projects that you're managing is a little bit incidental. They're all like particular in that they have their own pieces that require comprehensive understanding or at least semi-comprehensive understanding to function as best it possibly can be. But I think it's just as easy as... My big role at I.O., besides being willing to be an idiot in front of people and be the guy who says things people don't like about Rain and Blood for the clicks, <laughs> is uh, is that I was like decent at managing projects and understanding deadlines. And, and I think the big thing that I, that I brought to that site was trying to like make the, ed- the editorial room into like a pipeline that made some kind of logical sense, that had like mm-hmm. a rhythm to it. Right. And... and that's the other thing that I that I did at Northwest Terror Fest is I think take what were like sort of mercurial goals and clarify them to other people and be like I want this done by this date for this reason in this way mm-hmm. and at the end of the day it will look like this. So what is that this that you're looking towards at the end? Like what do you view as the goal? for something like Northwest Terror Fest beyond, I don't just mean like bring in a lot of people and they all spend a lot of money and everyone goes home happy. I mean, more like when you look at the Northwest Terror Fest lineup, when you are arriving at this kind of festival, like what do you view the goal as? Like what is the product that you're trying to create? I want it to look fun. I want it to have some sort of mercurial or ethereal or uh let me try and find a better word um otherworldly quality Mm -hmm. like (laughs) that's what thrash was missing that's why death metal gets revived and thrash doesn't is because death metal has this gateway to like a parallel escapist universe that thrash didn't side note so yeah so that's one of the things and i i want it to be diverse but it, for it to make sense, 
to people who have like multiple levels of like of like metal fandom. Like it, you don't need to be someone like me who will check the Bandcamp best-selling list different times in a day after the Blood Incantation album comes out to see is it still at number one or does it drop to number two after six hours? Like, mm-hmm. I, it, you don't need to be like have that level of nerdness to see it making sense. You can be someone who like only knows the headlining bands and has heard of a couple of the second support bands and can look at it and say, yep, this looks like a cohesive thing that is, even though it's cohesive inside of itself, diverse. And also I don't want to beat this point into the ground too much because it sort of takes over the entire discourse, but even though it's important, I'd like it to be a fest where you can look at the poster and not feel sketched out about buying a ticket. Sure. Yeah. I'd like that. That's somewhat of a given one would hope, but it's not heavy metal. It's not, it's not people don't seem to care about that. I, I, I do. Yeah, I mean, I that is definitely the sensation that I've got. Is I've, I've part of me as a East Coaster when I think of the Pacific Northwest after a Twin Peaks, the next thing I think of is uh, Green Room. You know, yeah, <laughs> like right. That, that's sort of just like the inherent fear that I have of like, oh yeah, like it's a beautiful place where monsters live. <laughs> There's monsters and, in the woods. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. that's true. But there being monsters in the woods is part of what, like, makes living near the woods fun. Don't interpret that statement to mean that I think it's cool that there's, like, Nazi militias that live near me because it's very much not. I more just meant that. That sense of, right. Well, this is is why a lot of shit gets, um, does not get questioned, is it sort of falls under that same banner of otherworldliness that you described and i think for a lot of people they see that as a license to be play footsie with a lot of fucked up shit and then there's another group of people that will take that all the way to the nth degree or see that as an opening right to bring in all sorts of fucked up shit and what i appreciate about going the one time i went to northwest terror fest and what i've seen of the lineup since is that it's like oh i i know where these bands stand you know like we try. It, yeah. I, and I think that's valuable without sa- seeming like, it, it never also feels like you're preaching to the audience in that way. It, it doesn't feel necessarily like it's like, we're only going to have Dawn Raid and right. five other like pure leftist only black metal. Like, no, like that's not, <laughs> it's a small audience. Yeah. It, and it's not, it, it's not even like about, politics always like to an extent it's also about representation Mm -hmm. we got into sort of like i thought it was fun other people didn't but there was like we have a we have a uh code of conduct that we expect people to have that we put up every year and last time it happened i did add a line in where it was like don't wear any clothing that will sketch people out or i might ask you to leave and people like were like, he's policing my patches. He's gonna fucking kick me out. Dur, dur, dur. And I'm like, I'm like, in my head, I was like, I'm thinking more about like thunderbolts and and maga hats than I am about like your uh, Naglfar hoodie. I guess actually Naglfar is fine. I want to say Burzum, but the funny thing is, is like I actually think it's very realistic that someone walks in with a Burzum t-shirt and someone later comes up to me and says. Hey, there's someone in a Burzum t-shirt and it's sketching me out. 
Yes. So yeah. I guess Burzum is a bad example. A behemoth shirt or something like Maybe, that? Maybe. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> that's right. It, yeah. And I, I've got a fucking emperor pin. Like, I'm not going to kick you out for wearing a behemoth shirt. Throw a Zeke Heil and I will. By the way, the kicking you out for Zeke Heiling is for your own protection because, like, our crowd will stomp the shit out of you. Just, it, like, it benefits you too. Hypothetical person. Yeah, but I, there was some social media backlash over that, which I thought was fun. But, like, part of the way I, like, I had to, like, talk to my teammates, we had to have a debrief about why I did that. And I, I had to explain my actions, which is good. Leadership should have to explain why leadership does what leadership does. That's another thing that you think, like, everyone in leadership would embrace. They don't. No. <laughs> power <Nope>. consolidates. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> Well, I think power consolidates because often people don't actually have good reasoning for why they do what they do, but I did have a good reason for why I did what I did. And, like, my reasoning was, I was like, we've spent years, like, trying to make this a place where people who don't normally feel comfortable going to metal shows can feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the thing about making that promise to people is the more people buy into it, the more you need to reaffirm it we needed to express to the audience, which was like wider varied than it, than it had been. You know, it was like new people were coming in and right. felt like I had to show to the people that believe in us that like, yes, you can believe in us. We have your back for these reasons. And here's like a concrete example of how is, mm -hmm. yeah, you can come and talk to me about someone wearing a MAGA hat. As a matter of fact, I encourage it. And do you feel like once the initial social media storm subsided, do you feel like that had any impact on no. the success of the festival? No, right. <laughs> this is what I expected. Like yeah. you're going to have a bunch of people who make a bunch of noise about it because that's how they get their rocks off on the internet or how they build up their own content and following and whatnot. But the actual festival exists in the real world where people are generally less uh prone to takeifying you know <laughs> right i mean also it's like i don't book sketch bands if i can help it or if i know better which 99.999 percent of the time i do right so it's like <laughs> the people who are going to like wear a provocateur band patch to that fest aren't gonna buy a ticket because i'm not booking any bands that have like that are dog whistling nazism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so it's like it they're just the two audiences are for the it's a very small venn diagram in the middle and that venn diagram in the middle is just the invisible oranges comment section just was the invisible oranges comment section back when they had right. one <laughs> good good it yeah. should be gone i never liked it you were there. I made numerous arguments where I was like, we should just get rid of it. Kind of transitioning then into the other side of your journalistic endeavors these days. You also run a monthly metal column. I do. With our, our mutual friend and internet sensation, Langdon Hickman. Behold, the only person in Invisible Oranges ever who's good at social media. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, uh, another, um, a different friend of mine. Did you ever meet Emmett Penny? No. You have, okay. I, I've, I've heard the name, but never met, never even communicated. Yeah. We, uh, we were talking earlier today. He, he sent me one of Langdon's invisible oranges tweets. And I was like, did, 
did you write this? And I was like, no, no, I was way too straight laced to do shit like that. Um, he's, Is this him talking about Dracula today? Yeah, it was one of the Dracula It's posts. amazing. Yeah. He's so smart. Dracula's I, in the public domain. If you're making a concept album that doesn't involve Dracula, what are you doing? I'm like, why I didn't wanna, I think of that? I do want to have Langdon on at some point too. So we'll, now, now I feel like he's, he's come up in multiple of these episodes. So, now it'll be a payoff when the man himself finally arrives. But anyway, so you, you do this monthly column with Langdon who, you know, and both of you have a very different take on the monthly metal column that I think was previously around. It's, it, it definitely, at least to me as a reader felt like, Oh, this is like shit that I had been looking for in some way. So what was your approach to mining metal and what's your, what's your goal for that column? The, the big differentiator between mining metal and like a lot of other metal columns, I think, is that Langdon and I have like a blacklist of labels where like the goal specifically is if you're on a label this big, we just won't talk about you. Credit to Consequence of Sound for even clearing the column because basically like right there in the premise is we're promising that it'll never go viral. So it like it the idea was that it would be like really well and truly focused on like what the like the original like quote-unquote invisible oranges project was which was just like doing exposure for bands that are otherwise underexposed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and beyond that and also like no fash the sky's kind of the limit or i guess i guess you'd call it the gutter like the sure. gutter's the limit <laughs> or is it's like don't care about genre we just have to like it enough to talk about it do you feel like that opens up space because i know that like this is something that I think the three of us, I'm including Langdon in this conversation, uh, talk about a fair amount is the degree to which like power metal and more mainstream sounding melodic metal stuff that's m way more popular in Europe than it generally is in America is sort of uncovered or not touched by a lot of American metal media or not taken seriously in the same way. I feel like one of the things that I like about the the column is that there's not this sort of like that stuff sucks implicitly bias and that you allow for more like European power metal or progressive metal stuff that I think otherwise would get ignored in a more extreme metal focused site. Do you think that's a fair read? That is a fair read. Although like we've done columns that have like all guttural death metal bands. Sure. Like we've sure. done that before and mm -hmm. we'll do that again. I'm certain. I kind of like the Dungeons and Dragons shit. And I think most, well, it's funny. Cause like now I think it's not just us. I think it's just the wave. Like I, I've thought this for a long time, but I really truly do think it's coming. Like I think the D and D metal wave is going to be kind of a bigger thing for a few years starting soon. What do you think is leading to that? I had this convert. I have, there's a monthly zoom call with a bunch of, bloggers weekly zoom call with a bunch of bloggers some of the no queen singing guys some of the guys from last rights which is a site that like part of the reason i respect last rights is that like they, they they are pretty agnostic about genre but like we were having this conversation where the same thing we were just talking about came up it was, it was like it was like that it was like that war metal stuff that sounds like revenge if you don't know what war metal is it's bad it's it's bad music but like we were talking about like that war metal and and raw black metal are essentially a white nationalist meet and greet by my read. And the question became, it's like, why do people even get into that stuff? And I said, eventually you just chew through everything else 
that like you need something that has some sort of like real indelible hit to it to scratch the itch i think eventually mm-hmm. and like weirdly enough once you get to the very bottom of the metal subgenre list the two most extreme things you can get are like black metal that is noise and dungeons and dragons shit because right, it's just right, right. it's just so opposed to taste and the mainstream respectability in its own way like it like it 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 truly does like say to someone around you if you're like wearing a manila road shirt it does in its own way signal that you just don't give a fuck i i found like once when you hear a power metal song and you enjoy it it is actually the most freeing experience that you can have in metal because you do not care right you have you have lost the ability to care about what other people think of the music you're listening to like even black metal at this point because of this sort of hipster hipsterfication that we talked about earlier in the podcast someone that is like smart and hip about music can at least like intellectually respect you listening to dark throne you know right they're not right. going to feel that way about Blind Guardian. Literally, no one's going to feel that way about you listening to Blind Guardian, which is why, like, when time, what is time, kicks in, you're just like, ah, I'm free. <laughs> I'm free right. of the bullshit. I'm just enjoying sounds, you know? It's amazing. <laughs> There's, I mean, I know, like, some metalheads who are, like, they will leave the room when they figure out that, like, other, like, metalheads in the room are, like, having, like, a, an earnest discussion about the merits of Halloween. <laughs> i've right, seen right, right. it happen and it's like it like invariably it's people who like are like super deep into like slam or black metal um when mm-hmm. they're like i just can't with this and i'm like you're aware that blind guardian is ride the lightning metallica with freddie mercury singing like that's the it is the most mainstream formula you could possibly conceive of it's just that like the songs are about fucking lord of the rings and you can't take it Right. Yeah. It's cool when Robert Plant does it, but when, right. you know, someone who does not have any sex appeal does it, then it's whack. <laughs> exactly. Whereas like, I think the, I think the more punk attitude is like, no, 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 that we have no pretensions. This could ever possibly get us laid makes it cool. Right. And in that respect, you're right. Once you, once you chew down to the bottom of like, do you really love this heavy metal shit? At some point you will have to confront, you know, Rhapsody of Fire and you, know, you right. will be tested. <laughs> This is the Crucible. It's right. Andy Darris era Halloween. It's can you slow windmill headbang to the song Perfect Gentleman? And I can and have and will again. Will you join Stradivarius in the floating egg chairs above a crystalline sea? Like <laughs> I don't get Strat. I'm going to be honest. I don't get Stradivarius. I like um, power metal, but I don't like it's like Stradivarius is like um, too chrome plated. Sure. Yeah, it's it is actually like that's the thing is some of the European stuff is actually trying to be pop music. Like it's not even just trying to be power metal. It's like yeah, this, right. these are these are pop songs, so we're going to produce them like pop songs. And so there's like Sonata Arctica, Stradivarius, like that sort of stuff. I'm just like, eh. I love Nightwish. I think Nightwish is a stupendous band. They've got some tunes. That's not my vibe, but I respect them because like I actually yeah, I think that there's. It's funny. I feel like there was a lot of talk about like oh, there's not enough. Like, people don't write about women in, in heavy metal enough. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. No one talks about any of these bands with, like, operatic singers. They just right. all write it off as, like, 
not legitimate. And even people who do want to write more about women in heavy metal generally ignore that shit for some reason. That's my own personal weird take, but I, I think a lot of like the, the the gatekeeping against power metal in America, I think I think it is veiled sexism. But like that could I could go on I could go on for weeks about that. But it is sort of funny that like still like to this day I for example, the other day I was in a Facebook group and someone shared the poster for like a very large outdoor, like on the lawn fest in Switzerland. And it's at, it's like got Billy Talent and Power Wolf on it. And 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 a bunch of people are like commenting, they're like, this makes no sense. Who would book this? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like coming and I've got to like slide in like, you need to understand something. Everywhere except the United States and Canada, power metal is pop punk. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're the same thing everywhere except here. Right. It's just power metal bands. You couldn't sell dickies with them. You know, like right. that was the difference. Like they were too stuck in their leather pants ways to, you know, you can't sell skate shoes with power metal in America. And so therefore didn't happen. You know, well, we just but... needed a more robust Renaissance fair industry. <laughs> right. It, right. And it's, I, I like the, people rebelling against Nightwish. Like, I'm, I'm going to use some, like, terrible, like, internet meme lingo here, but, like, Nightwish, the band, is just, like, uh, Big Titty Goth GF plays Skyrim, the band. Uh, and I'm like, all you people who hate the band, this band is literally appealing to, like, the exact audience that you all wish you had in your life. What's wrong with you? <laughs> this is rambled in, in some fun ways, but I, I'm having fun, so if you want to keep talking, we can Let's keep go. talking. Um, so now we're just... my schedule. We're fucking freestyling, so... I know that you do have some other big critical concerns when it comes to heavy metal. This power metal thing is one that I think is like, I specifically enjoy talking to you about because it's one that I, I don't see a lot of other people talking about. Obviously Metallica is a big deal for you. Oh my God. But... Well, if we start now, <laughs> we can, but like if we start now, I, you know, I, but I fucking love that band. I, sure. Un unironic. I'm an apologist and I don't care. I bring it up just as a society example. And I want to, I want to sort of hear from your perspective, what the, what your big critical concerns are when it comes about writing about heavy metal, like what interests you in the genre that you like to focus on specifically. And specifically, if you can think of places where you zig, where other people zag, like where do you, where do you find that your perspective on the genre is perhaps unique to you metal is pop music and should aspire to that it doesn't need to not should should is too strong of a word let me digress here's an example here's an example that's going to illuminate everything and anyone who's like read me read my oeuvre or spoken to me for more than like probably 10 minutes about metal knows this i fucking love paradise lost paradise lost is in a weird way like the, the most me band that exists because for a minute, they thought they were going to be the next Metallica. And that was not just them. That was, like, everybody. Like, their reputation was, they will be the next Metallica. And had they committed to touring in the United States, it's realistic that that would have happened. They had an industrial-slash-dance pop phase, which yes. was good. <laughs> like, they were, like, good at it. No one gives them credit for that outside of, like, their core fan base who, like, do get happy when they play world pretending live, which they almost never do. But like, like if you see them live, like around Paradise Lost fans and they start playing something from host, there is a solid 40% of the audience that's like, fuck yeah. And I am like, I am one of those people. And also like, 
they were a huge influence on the symphonic power metal thing. Right. right. They, they, they got their second wind in a career, not because they pivoted back toward death metal. They're doing that now and it's doing well for them. But like what got them out of like the losing fans by being a dance pop band thing was going on tour with Within Temptation and Lacuna Coil and Nightwish. Lacuna Coil's whole shtick they just got from one Paradise Lost song. It's called mm-hmm. Christendom. It's an amazing song. But it, like you listen to that song, you're like, okay, here's everything Christina Scabia has ever thought of in five minutes. And so the illuminating example is that you believe... I just think, I think they're like a, a, platonic, a platonic ideal band. And like one of the things that like makes them good is that like every song is under five minutes. They all have a discernible verse and chorus and solo section. And usually the chorus is Nick Holmes saying the title of the song. And they've taken that, like, atomically uncuttable formula and ridden it roughshod over genre boundary, over cultural boundary, over over fucking everything, and created this, like, wild, wacky discography that is, like, also lovable and cohesive. And they're still doing uncontroversially wonderful stuff now i'm reading a, a book about them and and as i'm like reading the book as they finish a chapter on an album i go back and revisit the album and mm-hmm. side note just like having that experience with a band is fantastic i recommend everyone find a way to do that at least once for one band that you love when you bring that up as an example of why you think more metal should aspire to be pop music What's like the lesson that an aspiring metal band can learn from that example? Like what, what do you see as like, why do you think it is important that metal aspire to be pop music or work towards being pop music in some way? And what about Paradise Lost in particular makes them such an emblematic example of that? Try to, try to be fucking likable isn't sacrificing your identity. Mm-hmm. It isn't sacrificing your, your personality. It's like music that's made in a vacuum for no one is not valuable. Because what makes music valuable is the connection between, like, an artist and the audience. And to, let's be honest, more importantly, between the audience members and one another. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. That I agree with whole, right. whole and, fucking Right, and you can't facilitate that without, like, a room full of people that like what they're fucking listening to. Mm-hmm. Without reservation. So do that thing, maybe. Instead of, I got, like, an hours-long Twitter argument about this a few weeks ago, and you saw it. It's like, I, I think... I think artists have an obligation to the audience and part of that obligation is like for the music to be enjoyable in some way that is, that is comprehensible. Even if it it, it, like, and to be clear, like music concrete is enjoyable in a way that is comprehensible. Right. It just is comprehensible to a specific audience. Right. The joy in it's the decoding. And so the appeal only, the, the appeal is toward like people who actively seek things to decode, which is fine. That's accessible. That's acceptable. I get that. But like metal isn't modern contemporary. It's popular music. It's made for a populace. Stop acting like it isn't. Like it seems like a, it seems like a delusion to behave otherwise. It's a classic case of bands not knowing what they actually want. There's this whole sort of inferiority complex that metal has about classical music in particular. Right. You know, about like, oh, we're we're like that. That's like us, you know? Right, like people don't like our music because it's complicated like classical music people don't like our music because it's long like a symphony and it's like eh, 
<laughs> nice. Like I, there are bands, you know, that do actively draw on the techniques of classical music and more power to them. Do your homework. But I feel like a lot of bands want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be seen as being complicated, but also want to be loved. They want to be seen as, as, you know, having music that is challenging, but is also accepted. And they don't actually figure out where those two things intersect. And instead they sort of just waffle between, they use both to justify the failure of the other. It's ultimately, it's a navel gazing experience that doesn't evolve the art and doesn't spread it mostly to new people. And like it, it, I don't think art can remain static. I think if it's not expanding, it's contracting. Metal's like the only genre I can think of where like it's literally based on the year. I can witness it expand or contract. So where do you see it now in 2020? I mean, well, COVID, I, who the fuck knows now? But that's kind of why I ask is because it is very particular circumstances. I'm, I've, I'm asking, I've been ending most of my podcasts lately about with some sort of COVID content because it's... What are we ending? isn't the world ending there you go well this is the wind up for the ending so we'll okay sure 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 we'll see this through but i'm I'm curious to see what your perspective is about where heavy metal is going in reaction to this completely unique circumstance well it's funny a lot of the creative action in metal right now is is people who've been sort of liberated by technology to not need a band mm-hmm. to be able to like do things by themselves from their computers and like never play live. So like there's a there's like a really big population of, of bands who are important that this doesn't affect them at all. It doesn't seem. At least up until they have to pay rent and they have to start pawning their like digital audio workstations. And then it will. Which is morbid but true. On the one hand, I feel like there's a segment of the underground that is relatively popular that this doesn't affect at all. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of bands that more or less exist for the purpose of playing live and creating music as a secondary concern. Sure, yes. Don't agree with it, but I respect it. I get it. It's a job, and like I'm not going to like try and take food out of anyone's mouth if they happen to if their job is successful touring musician fucking hats off that's very difficult to do to be clear i think a lot of these people are not successful touring musicians sure (laughs) i i I think i think it i think it's actually more of a gaining clout locally exercise Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. purpose is to play shows i want to open for old school death metal bands so i start an old school death metal band and my ambitions are I sound like autopsy and I do that okay. Yeah, well, that shit never lasts anyway. So I'm not particularly concerned with clout chasers at the moment. But you, sure. feel, like, you feel like this is very bad for the clout chasing industry in the genre? Super bad for them. And I also think there's a lot of bands that like playing live is where they find joy. Mm-hmm. It's where they find meaning. And these are bands on like larger labels, like bands on Relapse that I think like the recorded product is fine. It's good and people buy it, but they exist to do the thing to people in person. I have friends in in bands like that. And I think you can, you can tell because they're bands that usually weirdly have like dedicated fan bases, but the albums kind of leave you there. Sure. Because they never do anything in the studio that captures what they do live because like what they do is lock in 
with each other than with a person and make this make the feeling. Yeah, it's just it's not something that can be replicated in a recording in the same way. You, they, like they should only do live albums, and most of them never have done a live album. I think those bands are really hurting. Yeah, and and those are bands that do bring people in. Yeah, because I think I think a lot of people like get into metal from the live perspective, and won't ever get it from like listening to an album stream or a track or an LP. Like I think that'll come later. I think they. What starts is they like go to a show and someone says, "Hey, let's go see." I don't know, Yob. I'm just throwing a name out there. I'm just thinking of like a band that is like unambiguously powerful live. Yes. And th- maybe this person has like only like a passing interest in Black Sabbath, and, and otherwise is mostly a contemporary like indie person that has like the, a high decibel threshold, and goes to check Yob out, and walks out being like riffs. Like, yeah, sign me up. I'm, I'm sign in. me up. Like, get me a T-shirt. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's so true. My general, I've sort of slided towards heavy metal and hardcore, are, in a sense, like physical body music. A lot of the time, what makes mm-hmm. it interesting is what it does to you physically. You know, whether that be like the sensation of a yob riff, like rumbling through your intestines and you like feeling the whole thing in your entire body or like a hardcore band functioning as dance music and like getting you to, you know, want to kick the shit out of air, you know, right? like all of that is stuff that is stripped away so severely at the moment. And that I, I, I see as like a, a major detriment to the growth of these genres, because if you cannot, physically affect people then one of the major avenues of this culture is irrelevant you know and that fucking it fucking sucks it really really fucking sucks just pivot backward for one second sure. I just want to bring, here's i must say one interesting thing about paradise lost <laughs> even though i'm like one of their like biggest fans notoriously only kind of eh, live they're the they're like the rare example of the opposite we're like where they shine is like the polished audio product. Yeah. And, well, I think and, that there's a lot of actually, even to the, the power metal stuff is uh, there's uh, this maybe is more in the prog zone, but like a lot of that shit, it's like the experience you want is the labored over perfected audio product. Right. You know? the what, like I feel like the thing that's happened now is that basically in heavy metal, it's, it is the victory of the inside boy music right now. Like right. th- the record that you listen to on headphones and don't move at all is right. the kind of heavy metal that really succeeds in this new setting. Hopefully not for too much longer, but that's kind of like where I see things going for the foreseeable future. I do a lot of my listening working out. Yeah, that's a good point. And, 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 and so like it, a lot of inside boy music just no longer affects me at all. I, I used to be like a really inside boy music guy and I've lost it. I, I can't listen to new Mastodon. Now. Yeah. Well, there might be some other problems, <laughs> but you know, they have at least one album that is transcendent. They're completely incapable of doing live, which they then decided to do nothing but that album live front to back for two years, which is an inexplicable decision to me, but that's a thing. That's a that's real a thing. thing that happened, you, you know, but like, I can't listen to, records like 
I guess I guess like the closest thing to that would be like um, right now like Ulcerate or or Aransi Pitutu, mm-hmm. I think. Those are like, yeah, yeah. Those are like good albums from this year that are like ultra heavy, non physical. Yeah, it's heady heavy metal. For he- sure. It tr- it's like um, trance. Those yeah. are like because I've seen them both live, and those are like put you in a funky headspace bands though but even so like i think i didn't get aransi pazuzu until i saw him live right 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 I, I can get that do you have any i know that you're an active writer um and i know that we have a joint project that i'm sure you'll be back on this podcast to promote once it's ready to be promoted but because promoting to our own same audience is a great marketing strategy right well <laughs> If I can't take the piss. <laughs> no, it's, it is it it duly noted. But do you have anything else coming up on the horizon that you would like to promote or otherwise give voice to before we, uh, we turn the mics off on this one? Let me, let me spin back to my career for a second, just because I've literally never been interviewed about my career before. I, that's <laughs> not true. But I think this is the first time like in, in audio I've ever been like interviewed about my career before. I always actually saw journalism and music journalism in particular as a waypoint, not an end goal. Sure. I never wanted to be known as a journalist in music or otherwise. I I always wanted to do fiction. And so I'm like, one, like, I, I don't like to say cool, but like one, like cool thing about the last couple months or interesting thing is I've, I've finally been like back in that world and uh, and like working on music has like made it better than it was before although some that's just like the maturity of age so like when i graduated college this is i guess like a piece of the story that i missed earlier but, like when i graduated from college my um so my uh senior supervisor is a poet named diane seuss die seuss she's actually been shortlisted for the pulitzer prize since this ultra talented woman she's why i went to that school and i learned poetry under her which i haven't pursued since sadly but i loved poetry but i I talked to her and like you know the economy is in the tank i'm like what do you think about grad school what do you think about me getting my mfa uh and she said look she's like i think it's useless to do that now i was heartbroken and i said why she's like you're not gonna find your voice as a writer until you're in your early 30s there's no point in developing it until you know what it is and you don't know what it is yet i'm like very foolishly i'm like i'm 21 i know what it is and she's like you (laughs) she's like "I i love you as a student but like it's you're not there yet like it's going to come together but it isn't there yet and it's just a function of age she said i was like is there anything i can do to speed that up and she's like writing anything always helps like that's always what, so I like, I, I literally like, picked something to do that would keep me busy sculpting language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's always in the back of my head. Never write anything is like, I need to, if this isn't pushing me to be like a better writer from the reader's perspective, I'm not certain it's a project I really want to undertake. So like, and, and like, that's a big part of my creative process that I, I don't know is part of other people's creative. I, I think a lot of other like music journalists, quote unquote, care about like what's good for musicians or what's good for the audience in their opinion. 
and not about like the pursuit of like the craft as a goal in and of itself. Yeah. 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 I feel that. I mean, sort of to your point about bands having audiences and having some degree of responsibility towards making sure that their audience is able to take in what they're, what they're putting out. I do think that writers, I guess with, with writing the craft and effect, especially in something like music journalism is much more aligned. Like the better you are at the craft, the more your audience will get out of it. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. I, sometimes I, sometimes I look at like what's trending and what isn't. I'm just kind of like this, but okay. Yeah, but it, well, something that gets clicked on the most is not necessarily the thing that people get the most out of. That's true. And like I could everyone including myself could use a reminder of that. So, yeah, you're you're working on fiction again? I am. I am waiting back next week I'm going to get like a professional edited draft of my first novel and I just finished my first draft of my first screenplay. Fuck yeah. Well, that's very fucking exciting. Do you have any sort of quick glimpses of what that actually entails or is it too soon to put any of that into into the ether yeah what blogging doesn't prepare you for is that like these like bigger projects like rewriting is like 90 percent of the project Mm -hmm. you're i think like if i've learned something from like trying to write a novel it's that like rather than be laboring over it and trying to like work on like a grand product and then getting like a first draft that i know needs like huge problems maybe in retrospect it would have been better to just like the last time i got unemployed (laughs) just like taken a month and just done nothing for three weeks but like smoked weed and written from dawn till dusk and just got like a really crappy first draft out and maybe that actually weirdly would have been like a more effective use of my time (laughs) i just meant what what are the what's the novel about like what can you say about that it's fantasy novel fantasy the renaissance and magic and assassins sick (laughs) yeah it's sick it's like it's there's like here's a weird effect of like starting as a a music journalist but now i think like forever everything that i do will read like in some way like it's meant to appeal to metalheads uh (laughs) so like even though like it's got nothing to do with heavy metal in and of itself i think supposing it ever gets like actually finished and published i think it's going to be something that like metal people will enjoy fuck yeah well i'm sure we'll talk about that more once it's coming down the pipe but for now people can find you where they can find you i'll link to you in all the various places where you need to be linked and yeah dude thanks for coming on man this is a lot of fun i always love talking with you thank you so much for having me love talking to you too buddy (laughs) this guy thank you again for listening And thank you, Joseph, for joining me. You can follow Joseph on Twitter at Joseph P. Schaefer and on Instagram at Times New Roman Catholic. You can find more episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud at Lamniforms-Sounds or on the Apple Podcast app. More episodes soon. Until next time.